Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often this hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Issa Dasu Patel, co-founder and CEO of health tech startup ConnectCare. Issa grew up in a family steeped in the pharmaceutical industry. And as a consultant for Oliver Wyman, he took the lead on a key project with the NHS during the pandemic. As such, founding a business in healthcare was in some ways an obvious move for him, although he was later reminded that it was completely deviant from the five-year plan he had developed prior to graduating from Oxford. We discussed the distinction between passion and duty and how various intrinsic and extrinsic factors combine within the team. Issa also walks me through the learnings, appraisals, and introspection he gained while working at a consultancy, the challenges of dealing with stress, and the art of keeping our most self-critical impulses in check. More than anything, I love learning about the thread that ties Issa's passion and his family together, and how he is using it to solve one of the problems we face in healthcare. When you do a retro or you look ahead on a week, Mm. what are you listening to that helps you decide where to allocate your time? I think for me, it's, it's a listening to what you need, obviously, and what you need to achieve for your own, for your own work and your own objectives, whether that's personal or um, from a career perspective as well, for the company perspective. But I think for the position I'm in, so I'm the CEO of the company, ultimately my time is really not my time. It's effectively everyone else's time. And I need to consider everyone else's needs and what they all need from me as well that week. If, for, for example, to give you an example, this week we had um, a hackathon um, at Digital Health Rewired, which is being hosted by NHS England. Um, and I'm personally not involved in the hackathon at all. I've not really been involved in the day to day. I've not been involved in the planning. My entire product team or, or some of the product team was there, um, as was my co-founder as product officer. And I knew that actually me being there for two whole days would drive a lot of value and and it would be a great experience for the team as well to sit down with me and spend time with me and, and work with me on a day-to-day basis. So actually for me, I allocated those two days only to the hackathon, even though for those two whole days, I didn't do much besides present at the end, at the very end and help with the PowerPoint. Um, but besides that, it's actually allocating my time to other people's needs. And for me, those those are two considerations. Actually, what do I need to achieve this week, just me alone? And what do I need to do? And where do I need to support and be available for other people? And usually the latter will dictate where most of my time is spent and I'll have to work around that. That's tricky that, isn't it? Because in some ways you must feel pulled away from what you truly want to do. Yeah, I, I guess a little bit. But I think if if you know if you're taking a position that I'm I'm sure it's the same for you, often what others need to do and what you need to support them with will help you meet your objectives or what you want to do as well. Um, and I'm talking purely here from a company perspective, not from a personal kind of personal perspective. We can delve into that later if you like as well. Um, but from a company perspective, I think where 
where you support and where you make yourself available for other people will often drive a lot of value and results for you as well in terms of what you want to do. I mean, I usually find that often they're not conflicting. Yes, there are times when, for example, I just need a couple of hours or a few hours head down time to write a grant application, for example. Um, but at the same time, someone really needs my help. And it's thinking about, is is it is there a way for me to support this person or support my team member without without it being me, first of all? Can someone else help them and kind of direct them to someone else and, and help them get the support they need? Or if I really need to do this, is there a way I can juggle both? And usually, sometimes the answer is no, I can't juggle both. And I then need to make a quite difficult decision as to where do I devote the next four hours of my time, for example. Mm. Um, and that's that's often a tricky question. I don't think there's a, there's a kind of framework for that, really. When you first graduated from Oxford, how, how did you go about you studying PPE gives you all these different options? Yeah. How did you narrow them down? <laughs> I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Um, I, I actually left um, Olive. I'm sorry. I left um, Oxford, and I first went to America to study there on like a, an exchange program. Went there for six months. Took a year out. I already had a job offer at Oliver Wyman um, Management Consulting Firm, and I think I was kind of deferring whether I really wanted to go or not, and deciding is that really what I want to do. And I kind of chose consulting for the same reason I chose PPE because I kind of liked a bit of everything. I didn't really know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to spend my time, and I knew that would be a kind of a a good way to a deflect that decision for a little bit longer and importantly kind of learn about what I want to do and where I want to be. And so that's actually why I went into consulting. So I actually deferred that decision. But having said that, I actually remember I met up with a, an old friend of mine um, for about 10 years ago. And I, he said to me, oh, he said, how's your five-year plan coming along? And I kind of said to him, what? And he said, you, you had this five-year plan when you left um, Oxford. I said, I don't really remember. And he said, yeah, you did. I remember distinctly, this was your plan. You know, year one, you're going to go to Oliver Wyman. Year two, you're going to get this promotion. Year four, you're going to do this. Year five, you're going to make a career change. You're going to do this. And actually, my life ended up in a completely different direction. So it just shows that often you have these plans. And coming back to your question earlier, you have these plans and you might decide how you're planning to spend your time. But you end up doing something completely different because opportunities come up. And it's having that flexibility. And for me, it took me a while to get to that maturity level where actually making decisions and not planning everything to the nth degree, you have to be comfortable with not doing that. And it took me a while to get there. And I think I finally got there, having left Oliver Wyman um, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. It can look like a deferred decision. But as you spoke about it, it sounded like a very conscious one to optimise for breadth and learning whilst you weren't sure mm. what you wanted to do. Did the, Did during that process... Did you manage to find the thing that you wanted to specialise in? I think I did. Um, and I think, like you said, I think it might have been a little bit of a conscious decision because I, I've i always been interested in healthcare. It's it's, it's something I grew up around. Um, my entire family are in healthcare. I've not really known any different. I remember dining, you know, conversation at the dining table were always around healthcare, medicines, pharmacy, you know, old people. And that was my life. I don't think that's a normal dinner table. No, it's not a normal dinner table. That's all I knew. You know, I remember when, um, so my, my family are in um, the pharmaceutical and kind of pharmacy business. And sometimes they'd come home, you know, late at night with um, my, my brothers who worked in the business, um, would come home with prescriptions, be on a bank holiday into, because they have to count the prescriptions. Historically, they were all paid prescriptions. So you had to count the prescriptions for reimbursement wow. from the NHS. And they would, count they themselves would count all the prescriptions and that's like one of my wow. big childhood memories um but you know that, that had obviously been deeply ingrained within me and I had never really realized um and so I kind of 
I always knew I was interested in healthcare, but I wasn't convinced if that was the right route for me. I think consulting, it made me realize that actually that is what I wanted to do because I was, I was always fighting to get on the healthcare projects. When I joined Olive Wyman um, after my internships, after I graduated, their healthcare practices were tiny. Um, most of the partners had left a few years ago and so it was, it was a very small practice. And I was constantly fighting to get on healthcare projects and I always found... I had this moment of dread every time I got put on a fintech project or an insurtech project. I just knew I didn't want to do that. And so for me, that conscious decision of going into consulting to help me decide what I wanted to do almost reaffirmed that belief for me that actually healthcare is what I want to do. Um, and I was really fortunate that um, towards the end of my two years at Olive Wyman, Olive Wyman um, won a huge project with NHS Digital to do all of their COVID strategy and digital and data strategy work. Um, and I ended up on a project doing that um, and ended up staying there for nine months in the end, much longer than I planned. So I think it kind of, it, it pushed me along my journey a lot quicker. I think COVID for me as well, as I said earlier, COVID made a lot of people rethink what they want to do and accelerated that transition for me. So actually during the pandemic, I took nine months out of Olive Wyman to work with my family's charity because we have a healthcare charity. Um, and that for me, I think made me realise, I remember sitting in the office one day doing my Olive Wyman work and I was, I think I was on a project for an insurance company or a, or a financial services company. Uh, and don't get me wrong, they all do great work too. But I kind of thought to myself when I heard the phones ringing and this was during the, the early days of the pandemic. So March 2020, imagine yourself in March 2020, hospitals are panicking. They've run out of supplies. They're calling anyone they can get their hands on. And we were getting calls from police forces, local authorities, hospitals, obviously, our, our existing clients, saying we just don't have hand sanitizer. And we know you're a pharmacy group, so you must have hand sanitizers. Can you can you help us? Um, is there some way you can help us? And I remember I was making a deck, you know, for a financial services firm. And I was thinking, surely this can't be my calling in life. This is surely not what I'm here to do. Um, and that, again, is that reaffirm reaffirmation that what I wanted to do is is healthcare. I think is delivering better care for people ultimately. Sounds like you were getting these inputs that you were just naturally rejecting, mm. and uh, in that process and in that in that rejection, you were able to isolate what it was that you really wanted to do. Almost like you learned more from the things that you didn't want to do than the things that you did. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's definitely right. It's those those little signals and constant nudges that are reminding you actually stay true to yourself and if this is what you want to do why are you fighting it and and I think often we all we all come sometimes we'll have an idea in our mind and something we want to do and we will fight it and whether that's because of how we've been raised or what we've been told to do or what we believe is the right answer often stops you from accepting that truth and and it takes a while I think and it takes a journey for a lot of people to get to that place and like I said, it took me you know several years to get to that journey um, and I think once you're there it's then realizing that actually you finally got to where you wanted to be and making sure you embrace the opportunity when it comes. There are these threads that pull out from your story, um, keeping things broad, being pretty conscious with it, healthcare threading its way mm. through. And I'd, there's, a, there's a thread too from the moment that you spend your time with your family's charity mm. to then you don't go back to Oliver Wyman. Like, why Why not? Um, so I actually, did, so I did actually go back to Oliver Wyman um, straight after I finished the nine months stint there. And day one of going back, 
and again, this was a sign, <laughs> a signal and a nudge. I ended up on a project for a private equity firm in New York doing, you know, due diligence <laughs> on an insurance product. And I think that to me was a very clear signal that I think this is time, you know, this is, this is your, this is what you've been, the sign you've been waiting for. It couldn't be more clear than this. This is not where you want to be. Um, and then as I was thinking about leaving, that's when the NHS digital thing came in. And I thought to myself, actually, and that was a very conscious decision at that point where I'd made a decision. And I think coming back to our point earlier about making decisions and then realizing they might not be the best ones you made. I'd made a decision when I got into that um, insurance project that that was it. I was done. I was done with I was done with consulting and it was time for me to leave. And I was about to hand in my resignation. And like I said, that NHS digital project came in and I knew that actually to be where I wanted to be and to do what I wanted to do. This project was was what I'd been waiting for the whole time and couldn't find and so I actually made a conscious decision to stay on and stay on for much longer than I initially planned and stayed for nine months and I don't regret I don't regret it at all and actually now even thinking back to all of the decisions I made prior to that if I'd have left Olive Wyman a year in because I didn't enjoy um, doing all the work I described earlier then this opportunity to do the NHS work wouldn't have come up and perhaps where I am today wouldn't have happened as quickly as well I probably would have gone to another consulting firm to do more healthcare work or I might have gone into the third sector or, or policy I don't know what I would have done um, but I probably wouldn't have been on this exact journey I am today so actually I don't regret at all the decisions I made even though at the time I wasn't really sure if they were the right decisions I think it's really just shaping the journey as it comes along and realizing what you want to do in that moment and, and making those decisions and having that flexibility to make those decisions as well. How did you take all of that learning and decide to start a company the a whole load of different other routes that you could have taken mm. to spend more time in healthcare but you chose to start a company how did you make that decision yeah i think um it was it was a combination of things really one was so i was doing the i was, I was at the i was doing the nhs advisory work um and i was slowly ramping down on that project and the value i could bring was was diminishing so I kind of started thinking about what do I want to do next? Um, do I want to stay in consulting, do more projects like this, which I was actually really enjoying? Or do I want to strike out on my own, which I'd, I'd always, I always had planned to do this at some point. I'd always been very entrepreneurial growing up and as a kid. And I always knew that one day I would be running my own company and, and working for myself. And that just kind of springboarded that decision was, was A, that the NHS work ramping down. And secondly was my brother, who's my co-founder, actually. He, at the time, had started working on this technology that supports older people with their medicines and started creating this intelligence platform. And when I was at the, when I was still doing my consulting work, I helped him with a grant application. And in that grant application, I was named as the project lead. <laughs> and when we got that grant, I think it was quite clear that, well, this is it, you know, this is, wow. this is, this is the world telling me I, I can't, I can't now do that. I have to now do this. I'm committed. Um, and I'd made that commitment. And so I just went with it. It must've been, uh, you're cl it's a lot closer to home there too. Like if that's your brother that you've put that together with, yeah. it, it must've meant more in your mind there and therefore prioritized higher in your decision-making than if it had been someone else that you hadn't known so well perhaps mm. yeah i think um i think there's an element of truth in that um probably because he was it he, he's so he's my brother so i'm actually one of six siblings so <laughs> i've got loads of siblings um but he's the brother i'm closest in age to and we've always been very close growing up and 
we'd always kind of worked on projects together. I think the, the most distinct memory I have is when we were younger, we created our own little greenhouse. Um, and we and our, our family who love gardening and stuff, they had their own nice, you know, hose pipes and everything. And every time the hose pipes broke, we would get the leftover crap and we would use it on our greenhouse. And we really made an incredible greenhouse out of it. And so we'd kind of always been the younger siblings in our whole generation. We were the youngest. My dad and all of his brothers, we all grew up next door to each other. And it was a huge family. So, you know, we were always the young ones kind of doing our own little thing. And so I think this was for an opportunity for us to do that in the business world as well and strike out a little bit on our own and, and do something different. Um, and I think we're both very aligned in, in the way we think and what we want to do and what we want to achieve in the kind of company and culture we want to build. So that, that again, really helped mm. making that decision. What are the differences between your decision-making process when you were deciding to start Connect Care and what were the differences between your thought process and your brother's thought process? Mm. You know, it's actually not something I've um, done too much introspection on or even spoken to him much about. So perhaps that's that's a takeaway yeah. for me, actually, is go and have a chat to him about this. How, you know, what was the, what was the thinking behind his, when he was thinking about this? So he's very much, uh, Mafuz is, is, he's very kind of creative, visual, high-level thinker, very deep thinker as well, um, and very introverted um, in, a, in a great way. And I'm very much kind of the opposite so I, I am I do like to think I do reflect a lot but I'm very much I like to be out and about on my feet I'm, I'm very I love kind of the energy of people I love being surrounded by people I very I rarely um, like being on my own and and so actually we weirdly we're, we're very diametric in that sense in terms of our thinking processes and how we process information and people and I think for him so he, his background actually is in healthcare. So he was a medic, dropped out, went to do um, a master's in public health. And he's always been really interested in designing completely new models of care. And he's very visionary. He, he was a vision. He had a vision. And I think his thought process was, I need to deliver on this vision. And I, and I, and I have this vision. And I need someone to help me support in executing that vision. And I think I'm one of those people where... I do often look for signs. As I said, I, I often know what I want to do, but I will wait for a nudge or a sign or multiple nudges and signs to do that. And so for me, I think for him, he had conviction. This is what he wants to do. And he, he knew he was going to go and do it. Whereas for me, it took a bit more convincing because I could have joined him, for example, months before um, mm. when I was still at Oliver Wyman, but I didn't. I, I actively chose not to. And I think for me, it took a much more slow nudging and really thinking analytically about it rather than being emotionally driven of this is my vision, I want to achieve it. I'm very analytical in that sense and I'm very critical, self-critical as well. So I was kind of really analysing the situation. Is this what I want to do? Is this company going to succeed? Is this idea and this is vision something we can execute in, in the world we live in? And for me, it was a much more rational decision, I think. Mm. And I think that for me strengthened my conviction in, in the end as well. You said though that you're... Um self-critical mm. and being self-critical is just so important to all of the different parts of our career especially when it comes to making decisions and working out which decisions we made that were right and which ones that were wrong but it can also be really tricky because if we're too self-critical we can uh beat ourselves up and it can fall into uh almost like a kind of self-sabotage in a way mm. that goes that plays a, a bad role when we're trying to overcome imposter syndrome have yeah. you ever felt any of those pangs definitely um i think it's something i've taken years to kind of come to terms with is how how you manage that within your own life and that's even on a personal level not just 
in yeah. a business setting is when you are self-critical, you're constantly you're constantly thinking about your decisions. You're constantly thinking about every little thing you say or write and and how you present yourself, how you present your work. And it, it does obviously take its toll on you. And often, you, like you say, it, it presents challenges in that you might self-sabotage and, and do things that you know actually were right, but you, you just started doubting yourself and criticising yourself. So I think for that, to help me overcome that, what really helps is surrounding yourself with people that are not that way, that are not as self-critical, that really do kind of act a little bit more on their impulses or will really believe in what they're doing. Because if you, and that's both in a personal level, so that's my friends, um, the, my closest friends, for example, are very much not like that. And they will be that sounding board when you are being self-critical. They kind of give you those nudges, give you those reminders and tell you that actually you're kind of being crazy. So like, no, this is fine. Like you didn't say anything wrong there or whatever. And in a business setting as well, is having those people that aren't as self-critical means that you, again, challenge, you're, you're challenged and they challenge you in a very different way and stretch you in a very different way. And and that really helps. Actually, my brother and I, what we are similar in, in that respect um, is that we are both quite self-critical. And I think he's actually a bit more self-critical than I am. And it's that constant, it's that acknowledgement that we are both this way and we need to be aware of that so that when we communicate with each other, we need to bear that in mind. But importantly, when we communicate to the remainder of our team, we need to ensure that we're not doubling down on being so self-critical that it's almost defeating for everyone else. Um, and that's why we, we at Tiago, who's our tech lead and our, our first hire, actually, he's... He's very good at that, actually. He's very good at saying, no, this, I think this is great. Let's carry on and go and do this. Um, so it's having that sounding board and acknowledging where your limitations are and where you are self-sabotaging so that you can bring those people in to kind of bring you back on track. Do you go through uh, any kind of practical process yourself to understand your limitations? So when I was in consulting, it was done for you. Um, every single project you had, you'd have a review. And the review was completely 360, where it was, it was everything from you know, your writing style, the way you communicate, the way you present yourself, blah, blah, blah. And and I what I interesting what I found is that whilst that was a reflection on your work, it was often a deep dive into your personality. Because when you have these projects so frequently in consulting, in management consulting, your projects are up to eight weeks long maybe, maximum. And when you're having these constant project appraisals, what you're often finding is is actually picking out deep personality traits within you. And these are things that are limiting you. And, and I remember this one project I did, um, and this is me being very transparent and open, um, this one project I did, I, I hated it. I really detested it. Um, I just did not think it was for me, and, and I really fight it, fought it. And I remember they wrote in the review that Issa has a no man... For those that are close to him or work closely with him, Issa has a no man left behind... I'm quoting directly here. No man left behind attitude. But to those that don't worry, work very closely with him, he can give off the impression of apathy. He should avoid making that impression, for um, particularly for senior partners who might not be working so closely with him. And that for me was really interesting because they obviously knew that I'm not the kind of person, even if I hate something, will just kind of pack my bags at five o'clock and leave or say, you know what, fuck you, this is me, I'm not doing it. I will put in the work and I will make sure that it gets the, everything that needs to be done gets done and to the nth degree. But when I present myself, I present myself, oh, I don't really care, like, I don't want to do this, etc. And that for me was a deep personality because I found that I often would do that in my personal life as well. But if I wasn't interested in something or even if it was a close friend talking about something that didn't really interest me so much, I would zone out and I, it would almost come across that I'm apathetic. And, and that's obviously not, a, it's not a 
good trait to have um, or, or not, not always. And so I kind of was very conscious of that. And now, you know, I'm always, when I'm, whenever I meet someone or I'm at a conference, when I'm anywhere, I would always kind of bear that in mind. And I'm always thinking about that. So I, I, I very much like to learn from my experiences, um, which I don't know if that's that the right way or the wrong way to go about it. Um, but you definitely learn. Um, and I often kind of now take that project appraisal approach to all of the little projects I work on myself and, and in my business as well. So for example, the hackathon being one of the examples, I'll kind of go away and do some thinking for a few hours about how it went, how I went about it personally, what I did, what didn't go well for me, where I think my limitations were, where those personality traits actually came in, um, in both a good and a bad way, and how do I overcome those in the future? Why do you think it's so difficult for us to do that introspection? I think... We're, because we're just not we do we're not when it's not that we're not we're not almost we're not told or when we grow up we're not nurtured to do that i think we I don't, I don't know obviously what your upbringing was but my upbringing was a very so i grew up in a very conservative um household I, by conservative i mean kind of socially conservative um so my family are indian origin from a very kind of um, old-fashioned community and even in england very traditional old-fashioned um, and then obviously being british as well i think british people generally we tend to be quite compared to other countries more closed off and um, a little bit more kind of reserved or, or conservative in that sense and when you grow up in that environment i think you don't learn to introspect you don't learn to self-reflect but actually what you learn is is to be self-critical which is almost the worst form of introspection yeah. the worst form of reflection and I think that's the reality. And I've got a lot of American friends and I lived in America for six months as well. And I remember that was one of the things I noted was just so different amongst Americans versus us um, here. in Boston. Everyone's in therapy. Well, yeah, I think everyone's in therapy. I think it's much more, um, there's much more of an honest, open conversation about that. And it's not a taboo. There's not a stigma. And I think in England, it's changing now. I think amongst the younger generation, amongst our generation, I think things are very different. But, you know, when I look back to my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, the idea of someone going to therapy or even, even talking openly about these kinds of things or having this conversation that we're having where they're even sharing deep, you know, childhood um, mm. parts of their lives was just, would just not happen. Um, so I think there's probably a little bit of that is that nurturing of how we're nurtured. But I don't think we can put everything down to our nurturing. I think a lot of it is also down to us, right? And I think some people are more introspective than others and some people just aren't. And, and I don't know why that's why the latter occurs, why some people are like that. And perhaps some people don't feel a need to be introspective. That one, I don't really, I don't really know, to be honest. Do you take any steps now that you're running a company to create an environment where people feel that like level of trust or I guess that like that deeper sense of like, it's okay to go through that exploration mm. yeah it's, it's something that i've actually been really conscious of um in my, in my company as well and i think that's where again, i say i don't regret doing consulting at all because i learned a lot of this was from consulting i think consulting is great for a lot of reflection for constantly analyzing and, and creating an environment where people can talk openly about things that are not work and i remember we used to have um, when i was in consulting you have informal one-on-one one-on-ones very frequently with your manager and with people that you're managing as well and your team members and when you come to those one-on-ones, the one rule is you can't talk about the project. You're not allowed to talk about the project. You're not allowed to talk about work. It's really about, hey, how are you doing? Just on a human-to-human level, how are you doing? How's things going? How's life? Like, are you okay? Like, are you getting on okay? Is there anything I can do to support you better? How am I working with you? How are we communicating with each other? 
And that, I think, really fosters a very deep personal connection with the people you're working with so that when you then then do going to work, when they know kind of what the challenges you're facing, what's going on outside of work. And so what I've actually implemented in our company is is exactly this, is 360 one-on-ones where I think a lot of companies now do this. But I will personally just call up every single one of our team members every month. Right now, obviously, our company is small enough for me to be able to do that. How I'll do that in the future is a question. Um, where I'll just call them up one-on-one. And, and some of them actually, because they've never done this, they'll just start rambling and talking about work. So, oh, yeah, hey, say, I'm working on this project. I said, no, no, stop. Let's, let's not talk about work. Let's not talk about your project. How are you doing? I know, for example, you have kids. Um, how's, how's everything going with that? Are you finding that you can spend time with them still? Are you finding that your your life and your work are compatible in that way? Um, you know, how can we change things in this company to help you as well? Um, and having those conversations. So recently, for example, I had a conversation with with one of our um, team members who lives in London as well. And because we're a largely remote team, I kind of said to him, "Obviously, you live in London. I live in London, and we rarely see each other. And do you feel that?" this is a social environment where you actually enjoy coming into work every day. Do you enjoy being here? Do you, do you feel like you know us as people and how do we foster that? And just kind of having those conversations and almost, I don't know the answer sometimes and, and asking those people for them. I think that really helps to build a very personal relationship with them and allows you, allows them to realize actually they have 10, 15 minutes just to talk, just to talk openly about whatever they want to talk about. And it's up to them as well. If they don't want to talk about it, that's fine. I think, slowly what you'll find is the more and more you have these the more and more they'll open up and they'll tell you things that they never said before when you reflect on your your own decision making what incentives do you think are guiding it i think i think as a business commercials definitely is is important just simply because without commercials you can't survive uh, commercials will dictate the longevity of your business and i think it's a very pragmatic and also quite pragmatic person I think that's definitely a, a driving factor. It's not the most important driving factor, obviously. But I guess, like, I guess my question's more like less to do with your position as the CEO, but more mm. to do with your your position as ESA. Like, yeah. at, at, what incentives are driving you day to day? I think one one of the big incentives is the ability to drive change, the ability to drive real change um, at scale, and and kind of having that impact. So, you know, you, you people always throw around the word impact, but actually thinking what what is the impact and in the industry we're in impact is really shaping people's lives and these are people that are vulnerable typically older people people like our grandparents who might be living by themselves and that's that for me is a core decision making factor and and is what i'm for example is what i'm doing going to achieve that impact if it's not then is it worth doing is it worth me spending six hours of my time doing this if it's not going to achieve that impact that I, that I really want to achieve and that we all want to achieve? I think that's a really crucial decision-making factor. And it, it might sound like a BS answer, but to be honest, it's, it's really true. Um, and I think was, I've seen that across the entirety of, of everyone that works with us as well. They're kind of driven by that one thing. And it's, it's a really powerful motivator, but it's this thing that when you're struggling to get out of bed in the morning because things haven't gone well the day before, that's the thing that wakes you up because you know that there are people, vulnerable old people, that are reliant on you and your technologies and your products or whatever it is or your services. And that often for me is, is what drives me and, and wakes me up and gives me that motivation to make those decisions and, and be quick in making those decisions when I need to be as well. Is there anything else there too? Because it will make, I mean, naturally we want to have impact, but there are also parts to our incentives mm. that are, there could be legacy or it could be, love or it could be mm. there are so many different parts and often it's 
that's like there's may- maybe like 10 15 of these things all yeah. going around but then maybe kind of a handful that are really mm. guiding it i think yeah i think there's definitely other factors as well i um, i think legacy is probably one for me that's quite an important one um and i think it's a really good one for the one they mentioned i think because it's really and i think that relates to impact as well is i'm very much someone that i would i would like to leave a legacy behind um i would and, and it's not personal fame or anything not in a fame setting or can be known as me but to actually leave leave behind something that people will remember and continue to benefit from for years to come. And that's why for me personally, I've, I've always been really interested in charity work. Um, I do a lot of charity work outside of outside of my business as well. And even even actually try to weave that into my business as well. Because for me, it's to, to have a legacy and not just yourself and your family or your friends, but other people as well. Because that's where you see your impact in work for generations to come. Um, and for me, that's that's a really important driving factor as a decision-making factor is, you know, for example, even, even the small decisions like, okay, which grant should we apply for? That often you, you'll decide based on which funding should I go for? What, what, where should I go with this business? Legacy is, is something that can play into that decision-making factor. So that's probably the other one. And I think the third one is probably personal growth, um, which is perhaps a little bit selfish. But for me, you know, everything is, is a journey for yourself as well. And it's, it's all about you growing as a person as well. I think for me, personal growth is really important. Um, and not only would that drive success for myself, but hopefully for other people as well. So I would say probably those those three things. How do you stay on the right side of stress when it comes to your motivations? And how do you utilise stress in the most positive way during your mm. your time working? Yeah, that's that's one I'm currently <laughs> currently grappling with. Mm. I find that increasingly my nights are more and more restless, um, which is when I know obviously my stress levels are high. Mm. Um, and to be honest, I'm still I'm still coming to terms. With that. I'm actually part of a, an anonymous founders kind of um, community, and that's often a recurring theme. Um, is is stress and how people manage stress and to be honest I've not really found the solution yet to be honest um, for me what helps though on a day to day is like I said that coming back to that notion task list that I mentioned earlier for me mm-hmm. to be able to just sit down and have visibility over that um, and actually that's just before our call that's exactly what I was doing <laughs> is because I had this hackathon for two days obviously because I've been so out of it my emails are piling up my list of work to do is piling up and I'm behind on my task list and that, for me, was causing me a lot of anxiety. And I know last night I didn't sleep well because of that. So actually, to wake up this morning and clear my diary of, of things that can be cleared and just sit down with my notion task list and think through and just think, okay, what do I need to do? Take a step back and realise, actually, this problem is not as big as you think, Issa. Yes, you've been away for two days. The world hasn't come crumbling down. Your company hasn't come crumbling down. And your life is still very much together. Um mm. So I think it's taking that step back to to realise that actually things are much better than it seems and coming and, and dealing with it in the way that you are comfortable dealing with it, which for me is reviewing what I need to do, where my priorities are and what I need to achieve. Um, that for me helps. And lastly, the uh, I've loved learning more about your the experiences that you've gone through and the kind of nudges that you've got along the way. Mm. And um and especially love learning about the the nudges towards health and how your your own background and your 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 family situation almost like brought you in that way mm. um, and pulled you in that direction. There's also a counter to that, which is that during our working life, we feel compelled in some way to do what our 
parents wished mm. <laughs> we feel this almost kind of duty trap to do do right by mm. what what and and it's not a conscious thing it's 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 kind of an unconscious thing like oh i i should follow this thing because it will that will make my family happy and that will mm. take them that way like how, is that a conscious thing for you and, and how do you balance the kind of on the one hand being truly intrinsically motivated by mm. health and on the other hand the kind of duty trap of feeling like you mm. need to be motivated by it yeah that's that's a really good question and <laughs> you i think you've you figured me out pretty quickly um so i think that's the yeah i think i think i don't i don't to be honest i don't really know um and that's something i remember when i met when i was doing the charity work um a year and a half ago i met with this incredible guy who he's, he's a doctor and he had a kind of medical supplies charity and we we're working with him and he's a very introspective guy and he he said to me you know he's uh and this was within one day of meeting me, he said, you you seem to me that someone that carries the the burden and responsibility of duty on your shoulders, mm. yet you also have clearly a desire to to break out and, and do something bold and do something exciting, do something new. And but you're conflicted between those two. And right now you're doing neither. And but he said, but I think in your mind, you think that both are opposing ends, that both are not possible to do together. But he said, actually, you can do both. And for you, you know, it's actually embracing that duty and responsibility and that legacy. And for me, I think that legacy point that we mentioned, it, it's come something again, deeply ingrained within me and take that and drive it in your own direction and take it in the way you want to go with it. And that will then become your legacy. That will become your burden. That will become your responsibility that you'll probably leave behind on someone else. <laughs> um, and I think that for me was really powerful because he was right. And often you, like I so say, you, you, you find yourself torn and conflicted, but actually you've made up that confliction in your mind. And I always thought that those two were not compatible. Actually, so to your point about whether I'm doing healthcare as a duty responsibility, I think yes, but actually I'm doing it in a way that works for me and I'm, I'm breaking out. And that's my breaking out actually is driving that legacy because I could have just done that in the way I've grown up. I could have gone and joined kind of the day-to-day -day, um, business that my family work in um, or gone and become a doctor, for example. But actually this was my way of shaping my own legacy, but still carrying that burden along with me, um, but in a positive way. Isarov, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I think it is so uh, beautiful that that thread can pull all the way from mm. your family through you <laughs> and then like you said from you to 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 the next um so thank you so much yeah, no it was, it was a pleasure talking to you it felt like therapy <laughs> no it's really really chat really good questions and really kind of made me think as well so really appreciate it really appreciate oh, i really it. enjoyed it man yeah really enjoyed it the best work podcast is produced by the team at cord I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening. <laughs>